Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Here, In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Preston So. Preston is a product architect and strategist, digital experience futurist, innovation lead, developer advocate, three-time South by Southwest speaker, and author of Voice Content Usability, Gatsby, The Definitive Guide, and Decoupled Drupal in Practice. A product leader at Oracle, Preston has led product design, engineering, and innovation teams since 2015 at Acquia, Time Inc., and Gatsby. Preston is an editor at A List Apart, a columnist at CMS Wire, and a contributor to Smashing Magazine, and he's delivered keynotes around the world in three languages. He's based in New York City, where he can often be found immersing himself in languages that are endangered or underserved. Preston and I dig into some of the fascinating research and insights from his latest book, Voice Content Usability, which was released on June 22nd. This was such an exciting conversation about voice and language as our oldest interfaces. We nerd out on linguistics and paralinguistic phenomena and discuss the innovation and evolution of language. Preston shares valuable lessons from his work with Ask Georgia Gov, which included accessibility challenges and perspectives on how we might design to be more inclusive when it comes to the emerging world of digital voice interfaces. It was an honor having Preston join me on the show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, Preston, welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure having you here. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hey, thanks so much for having me here, Matt. It's a real pleasure to be here on the Iowa Idea Podcast today. My name is Preston So. I use he, him pronouns. I like to call myself a digital experience futurist, but that's a term that I think is a little bit loaded in a lot of senses and different dimensions of all those words that are part of that phrase. I generally work in the realms of everything related to the ways in which we interact with digital experiences today, whether that means content architectures, content strategy, content design, or when it comes to user experience and usability. My background was originally in web design and print design, and I transitioned more into a lot of these really interesting, more futuristic realms of digital experiences that we see today around things like voice interfaces, augmented and virtual reality, immersive experiences, all these really newfangled interfaces that are becoming really interesting as part of our uh, potential, let's hope, return to normal here soon from everything that's been going on over the past year and a half. Excellent. That's great. Yeah, there's so many different things we could dive into. And and as you said, all of those different words individually could seem kind of loaded, right? And then mixing them up in their order. But I, I love the space that you're playing in and uh, maybe apologize to all the guests at the beginning of this episode, because I could I could see myself nerding out and and going deep on some of those uh, all these things that you're working on. Uh, so you you 
you start out in print and web design. I think you know a lot of a lot of people with some uh, some years under their belt in kind of the digital space. That's kind of how a lot of us got started. Uh, but where where did your your interest that you could tie to more future or kind of uh, voice interface? Where is there kind of something in your in your arc that you see this is probably where that interest uh, was sparked? Sure. There's a lot of strands in my life that have kind of contributed to this interest in voice and specifically voice content, which is the subject of my newest book, my third book, actually, Voice Content and Usability, which uh, came out on June 22nd. And it's really rooted in several aspects of my career and my interests over the course of my life. The first, of course, is that um, I have a very strong interest in languages and specifically linguistics. I was a college major in linguistics. I did work on language policy back in the day. And I've always been interested in terms of the way in which we deliver content, the ways that we consume content, how the dynamics of language and how the ways in which we construct language and serve language can either inflect or adjust or modulate some of the ways in which we uh, actually instill trust in our user interfaces, the ways in which we perceive these user interfaces that we interact with. Now, the web has always been, up until now, a written medium for the most part. And back in 2001, I started getting really into web design and web development because that's where a lot of the future of publishing was headed. A lot of us saw the way that digital properties for a lot of these content organizations were really shifting over to some of these new environments. And that was a really interesting transition for a lot of us because the ways in which we used to consume media weren't things that were relying on hyperlinks or navigation bars or sitemaps or search engines and some of these things that we now consider very commonplace across our industry. However, I think one of the things that's been happening over the past few years, which I find really intriguing, and I've written quite a lot about this, probably a little bit too much about this as a matter of fact, is the fact that a lot of these preconceived notions that we've had about written content, this transition from microfilm archives and the written tabloid over into the visual media that we find in browser viewports and uh, mobile applications and those sorts of delivery mechanisms for content are potentially, they couldn't be any more different from some of the ways in which we're serving content through really unprecedented conduits right now, namely spoken content, which is a completely different dimension in some ways and universe from the ways in which we interact with content, you know, and the ways we have interacted with content since probably, you know, clay tablets and papyrus. Uh, So I think that's one of the big reasons why I'm really interested in in the ways in which how we work with content and how we actually serve content for our users and customers really shifts away from the paradigms that we've gotten a little bit too accustomed to over the past few decades and now is really changing how we think about content and how we think about everything to do with language itself as well to begin with. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, because uh, some of what was uh, kind of coming to my mind as you were saying that too is, in in the grand scheme of kind of the uh, the the human timeline, right? The yeah, digital technology is is so new, and it doesn't really fit with the way humans are wired or the way that we've shared or constructed meaning in many ways. Uh, right? It, you know, that we've had we've had a. a, a 
kind of audio communication, we've had language longer than you know, starting to write a, a formal language or the way we think about it on the web or uh, also the way that uh, the human many times has to act more like a machine to extract information from from the device, right? I'm, I'm thinking even early web uh, search or even pre pre-web but using uh in school using databases like and boolean search right trying to trying to think about how has this been classified so kind of you know this this mashup of uh information architecture uh human-centered design and it, it seems like there's a lot to tease out uh that can can make this such a challenging space and what you just said there, Matt, I think is is something I really want to call out because it's something that I didn't necessarily talk about very much in my new book, and I haven't really talked about you know a whole lot in a lot of different places. But what you really just illustrated is the very paradox of some of the ways in which humans have interacted with technology over the past few years, especially. I think back to thinking of Boolean searches and all of that. You know, just this morning I was thinking about how um, Alta Vista, way back in the day, uh, had Babblefish. You know, they they acquired Babelfish, I believe. And Babelfish was, you know, just pales in comparison to what you can do today with Google Translate and a lot of the machine learning driven approaches to machine translation. But this idea of this paradox, I think, is really interesting because what we have here with voice interfaces and especially these spoken interfaces is the notion that now machines have to play on our playing field. You know, it's not necessarily us that has to learn about how to move a mouse or what a cursor is or how to type fast on a keyboard or what exactly we need to do with a video game controller. Because let's be honest, if we were to go back in time to, let's say, the, you know, 500 AD or 1500 AD and bring back a computer keyboard and a mouse with us. Well, you know, a lot of those people living in those times would have absolutely no idea what to do with any of this stuff. But if we could speak Middle English or if we could speak Ancient Greek, we could probably still have a conversation. And this is one of the things that I find most interesting is that whereas we have this almost amazing prehistory of language and the fact that the spoken word has been such a primordial aspect of the human experience for millennia, but only in the last few decades have we finally begun to figure out how computers can talk back to us and have the sort of compelling conversation you and I are having right now. Thanks. I, and related to your your most recent book, uh, Voice Content Usability, and just some of the topics I know that are important to you from from your your writing. Uh, so, I think we'll we'll just we'll just go deep into some interesting kind of uh, ethics questions. But um, when it comes to voice content, I think one of the one of the things I'm always interested in is uh, whose voice, whose dialect, right? As we're talking about early voice interfaces, so. Uh, any any thoughts on kind of like the the ethics, the the inclusion, the accessibility when we we think about voice and 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 forgive me if I'm not using it, but I thinking about dialect, like you know, I think every, you know there's an egocentric notion that I, I don't have an accent, right? Wherever you live, you don't have an accent. Everybody else in different regions does. But just thinking about you know whose voice and whose dialect is one of the interesting challenges I think from an accessibility standpoint. Absolutely. And I'll approach this from a couple of different angles. First, from 
us as users when we interact with voice interfaces and how that changes our approach to voice interfaces at large, but also the voice interfaces voice itself and the dialectal challenges or the vernacular approaches that the voice interface itself uses. Um, so first things first, I'll share that in my newest book, Voice Content and Usability, one of the major case studies that underpins the entire book is the first voice interface for the residents of the state of Georgia, which we had a chance to build uh, for Amazon Alexa. It was called Ask Georgia Gov. And one of the main reasons we worked on this voice interface was precisely for those reasons of accessibility and precisely for those reasons of equity when it comes to content access. One of the things that uh, my dear friend, Chief Digital Officer of Georgia, Nikhil Deshpande, really focused on was the unequal distribution of content when it comes to the fact that a lot of people, especially in rural areas of Georgia, disabled Georgians, don't necessarily have either access to a computer or they might not have the same ability to use computers in the ways that most of the uh, typical web users do. And this is not just thinking about things like screen readers for uh, blind or low vision folks, but also things like refreshable, uh, excuse me, refreshable braille displays for those who are deafblind folks. And one of the things that we found with Ask Georgia Gov is that a lot of elderly Georgians, especially, were really able to benefit from this voice interface that allowed them to ask questions about what sorts of things they needed to know to renew their driver's license or enroll their grandkid in pre-kindergarten or get a small business loan or acquire a fishing license. And all of these things are really easy for us digital natives to find on websites. But in many cases, and I just had a conversation recently about this with um, somebody online where a lot of elderly folks, we forget that so many of them have never really used a computer on a daily basis, and a keyboard and a mouse might as well be something from the 1500s, as I was saying earlier, um, for some of these cherished residents of Georgia. And one example of this is that we found that the types of searches that people would conduct on the voice interface in terms of the information they were acquiring, uh, acquiring was completely different from the kind of information that people would seek on the website, which showed that demographic difference where people would look for state sales tax information on Amazon Alexa, whereas they'd be more likely to search for things like driver's licenses on the website. And what this really shows is, um, first of all, that it's important to really consider some of those users that you're missing when you focus on just this single tunnel vision conduit for uh, content. And I think a lot of us think that, oh, well, the website is the website, you know, we're, it's, it's just done, you know, we can kind of uh, wash our hands clean and call it a day. But that's really not true. And one, un, you know, one other really good example of this actually is we had a retrospective after the project was complete and launched about eight months later. And one of the 404 errors or one of the errors that kept on coming up was a Georgian somewhere in the state uh, searching for the word Lawson's, as in L-A-W-S-O-N apostrophe S. That's literally how Alexa interpreted uh, this word over and over and over again. It was, you know, showed up about 16 times. We were really confused about where it came from, why it was that somebody was trying to search for this seemingly proper name or brand name. Right, right. And we found, after doing a lot of digging and consulting some of the native Georgians in the room, that oh, no, it's actually somebody who has a very strong Southern drawl who's saying license, 
And in this case, it's Amazon Alexa who couldn't understand what she was saying. And this is one of those examples of how, you know, as much as we can build these applications or voice interfaces on our own that are well-designed and come within a millimeter of perfection, sometimes the underlying foundations that we build on aren't necessarily 100% ready to go for beating us at our own game of conversation. But I think there's a more interesting angle here, and you know, not just the fact that obviously a lot of these voice interfaces have trouble interpreting, for example, Indian English or Georgian English or AAVE. Um, I think another aspect of the ways in which voice interfaces can really change the way that we approach some of our content is their own voices. And one of the questions I ask in my book is, when you listen to Alexa or Cortana or Siri or Bixby uh, speak, who is the person that you're picturing in your mind? Because generally speaking, when we think about Alexa, and this is also reflected in the ways in which a lot of users speak to Alexa, and I've done a lot of listening to people who have these devices at home and the ways in which they interact with these devices. And it's very telling that some of the ways that we, for example, as a society treat secretarial white women who speak with a general American dialect are very much mirrored in a lot of these voice interfaces that we interact with. And a lot of those dialects and a lot of those vernaculars that people use, whether they code switch in the middle of a sentence between English and Spanish because they're from South Texas, or whether they are code switching between, let's say, queer and straight passing modes of speech because they're non-binary, um, or if they're, for example, Indian English speakers and they switch in mid-sentence between a more, let's say, British form of speaking or a more uh, refined form of speaking and, let's say, Hindi or even some of the more interesting expressions that people use on a daily basis in India. So one of the things that I think is really problematic here, and, and this is one of the things that I really cover a lot in my book, is when you are looking at treating people a certain way, that is reflected in the ways in which we interact with voice interfaces. And by the same token, the ways in which voice interfaces speak back to us is also something that inflects our approach to that content, our trust in that content, the credibility of that content in our minds. And it's really not that, um, it's really not hard to imagine the fact that a lot of people who are people of color or from marginalized communities might react to this content differently from, let's say, those who share the same community as the voice that is being represented in the voice interface. And one of the things that worries me the most about this is think about all of the people who stand to lose their jobs or lose their employment because of voice interfaces taking over a lot of the sorts of positions that are part of call centers, are part of customer service capabilities all across the world. And generally speaking, most of these people that we have conversations with who are 12, 16 hours away in time zones, they're not speaking with the general American dialect. They're not speaking in terms of using a lot of the, let's say, core American modes of speech that we use. A lot of them tend to be from the Philippines. A lot of them tend to be from the global south. And I think one of the things that's very important to think about is when we lose that richness, when we lose that multifaceted nature of the the humanity of all of the people, not only that we're trying to reach with voice interfaces, but also those who are being replaced by voice interfaces in many cases. It's something that is almost a huge quantity to think about because it could really have a lot of implications for not only users, but also the makers of voice interfaces too. 
Thank you. Yeah, just a, a couple thoughts. I really, really appreciate uh, your your insights and perspectives there. Um, and this, this might make you chuckle in a oh, that's cute kind of way. But uh, in in the late 90s, uh, some of my early uh, professional projects were working with large call centers for Fortune 500 companies. And uh, right, but it was doing the IVR work and even how challenging we found that, like trying to think through uh, limited decision trees so, and not in and honestly, like none of the none of the equity uh, and accessibility things that, that you've brought up, none of that was on our mind, right? It was uh, just, you know, it was more of a charge, just make this work, mostly for cost reduction reasons, right? Is 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 lower labor costs was essentially it. Um, so I find that interesting. And, and as you were talking about the complexity of it too, I was reminded about that as a designer and when I'd coach my design teams to avoid self-referential design and, I see this as such an important extension of that concept, but even for me, so much harder to think like, how many things do I take for granted in the way that, that I speak, the way that I process, um, you know, am I, am I, well, I mean, <laughs> demographically, I'm very much in a privileged category, right? A, uh, a white male in the U S right. That uh, a lot of the challenges like, and if I just keep that lens on, I, I see it as, as, as very difficult, which leads me to, I know you've written about this and it, it fascinates me from the old designer and me from usability testing, right? Is how you do usability testing when it comes to voice. Uh, and I know it's complex, but uh, do you mind walking through like some of the, the key considerations or even in your journey, uh, some of the, the discoveries you had that are, are that might be different from typical uh, maybe task and usability tests that we had with a visual interface. Sure. And I think, you know, one thing I want to do also is, is to preface this with um, just one other interesting angle that I think is, is really tough for a lot of people to think about from that designer's perspective, especially the self, the self-referential design idea, which is, you know, and, and, and this ties into usability testing as well. I think one of the things that we often forget as designers is the very different lived experiences that so many people have. And this is not just about people who are in the English speaking world. I think a lot of us also forget, um, and this is really interesting when it comes to IVR systems. Um, there's a conversational designer who today works at Google, James Jangola, who worked on an IVR system back in the day for Brazilian Portuguese speakers. One of the really interesting things that I think a lot of English speakers don't realize is that there are certain linguistic phenomena that because of our Anglophone or English speaking privilege, we don't actually realize a lot of these languages have. One example of this that I've written about on my blog is called, you know, is called diglossia, which is basically the idea where the spoken form of the language is so different from the written form of the language that they might as well almost be two different languages. And English doesn't really demonstrate this to a very large extent. We've got some small foibles here and there, like you don't really say the phrase to whom it may concern in speech. And you also don't really say the word or write the word literally as often as we say it in speech. But in Brazilian Portuguese, for example, there are completely different grammatical forms or completely different approaches to styling the language. And it's very interesting to see uh, his work in building IVR systems that are intended to reflect the ways that people speak 
as opposed to the normal approach to a lot of these chatbots and conversational interfaces, which is to mimic the way that we write. And that's one of the things that I think is really pertinent for usability testing, because a lot of the things that we do with usability testing today are rooted in the visual medium, the written word, the visual underpinnings of all of the things that undergird our user experience. But that's something that is almost a bias in just the same ways that we've been biased towards the web. Some of the things that we do today, for example, with usability testing for websites or mobile applications or visual interfaces or physical interfaces really can't be done in a voice interface setting. And one really good example of this is the classic approach of Think Aloud. I think Think Aloud is one of those approaches that we all love, we all use. You know, I think it's a great approach for doing things like, hey, tell me about your impressions about this you know, browser or this website that you're looking at. Um, and it's a very similar thing to eye tracking, where you have to think about the fact that, well, okay, think aloud in a conversational, especially a, a voice setting, could actually potentially have really detrimental ramifications for the results where you're getting a transcript of data that has multiple sources of conversation that might be thoughts that are actually maybe even triggering the interface accidentally. One example of this is a user might say something like, I selected this option or I selected that. And Alexa will hear that as, hi, Alexa. And, uh, right, and right. so think aloud. Think aloud doesn't really work. And so, so you know, one thing that I... Um, the approach that we used for Ask.Gov was uh, specifically retrospective because you can't necessarily do this sort of concurrent, let's say, simultaneous think aloud approaches. But let's walk through what you were going through at the time or let's walk through what just happened five minutes ago. By the same token, I think one of the really interesting usability testing techniques that has emerged to be one of the probably the most compelling uh, sources of, of insights for usability testing for visual media is eye tracking. But well, if you're doing eye tracking for a voice interface, you know, you're just going to be kind of looking at the walls or looking at the table or looking at your researcher. You're not really sure what you're looking at. And so it's really interesting to think about what are some of the analogs? What are some of the equivalents of these time-tested usability testing techniques? in a voice environment. For eye tracking, for example, it's still unclear exactly what that might be because there's no way for us to tap into someone's brain and think about how they're mentally thinking about that model in their head. Right, what's the linguistic heat map, right? Where Where's yeah. their brain drifting <laughs> as they're like accessing a word, right? I mean, yeah, that that is a tough analog there. Um, I, just kind of nerding out a little bit too because we were talking, when, when you were talking about uh, Brazilian Portuguese, um, I just was recently listening to an episode of the Behavioral Grooves podcast. And so that's more a behavioral science podcast uh, that a uh, couple friends of Tim Houlihan and, and Kurt Nelson run. And they had, um, I hope I'm getting his name right, uh, Roy Leonard. Uh, he does uh, behavioral science and linguistics work, but he was initially in the band Sha Na Na. Uh, so he's, uh, he played Woodstock because Jimi Hendrix liked his band. So here's a... He, but uh, he grew up in uh, in New York City and uh, you know learned Spanish and then it's when he went abroad that's when he found out he had a Puerto Rican uh, accent like you know, right didn't realize he has an accent uh, in Spanish uh, until then but then he said he became interested in one of the uh, the languages like kind of under 
in a taxonomy kind of under Swahili, and I forget which which one it was, but he he mentioned that they have 18 gendered references, right? Like sometimes we think male female in like Spanish or French, and and right, and it's not really that it's a it, it's a it's a classification system, right? So, like he he got that out there right away, but just thinking about now 18 different nuanced ways to help keep things organized. And so uh, that almost broke my brain because I was thinking about, well, how would you, des- when he was talking about, how would you design a global system to work in that? So one, I don't know if you had heard the, but any thoughts on when you, when you, when it just feels like we get dumped into a language that is so different uh, that it, for, for me, it's sometimes it's even hard to grok. Or when I think about learning English versus uh, you know, kind of Southeast uh, Asian languages that feel more symbol based and uh, what the reference points are, I just sorry, I, there's I think there's a question in there <laughs> in the spirit of her voice interface. Uh, Alexa would just say, Matt, I don't understand what you're saying. But Preston, hopefully you understand what I'm trying to get to. Swahili is a really interesting case, um, and the Bantu languages obviously display that Thank you. notion, yeah. uh, that notion of noun noun classification or noun classes, which is one of those elements of the ways in which we use language that is so interesting and so fascinating. Because in many cases, I think that a lot of us as voice interface designers, we get into this tunnel vision where we think about, well you know, how is this going to work in English first? And then we think about how to manifest that voice interface in other languages. And I think a lot of multinationals think this way because they have 25 different languages to serve, but of course they want to serve the easiest quote unquote one first, but easiest for whom? Because I think there's a lot of different languages where you see these issues pop up over and over again. One example is even in written interfaces, obviously things like diacritics and accent marks and the ways in which people are able to type languages out. When you think about the fact that, for example, a lot of people around the world don't have access to a computer keyboard that can type in their own native alphabets. And so you get all of these interesting problems with interpreting certain words and certain speech. Um, the classic example of this is, is, is uh, you know, Turkish, where if you have an I with a dot or an I without a dot, those can mean very, very different things and can even potentially uh, result in you saying a swear word instead of something that's a normal everyday word. So one of the things that I think is really important for a lot of voice interface designers, and I think there's a lot more of this happening, where back in the day of, let's say, the 1980s or the 1990s and early 2000s in the IVR era, and also the initial days of, let's say, computational linguistics really becoming part of the mainstream, one of the things I find that's great now is that a lot of other portions of the linguistics field are now becoming more important to the ways in which voice interfaces are built. It's not just about the, you know, um, universal grammar approach to trees and making sure that everything is matched up with the parts of speech in English, because there are fundamentally differences between languages that cannot be accounted for in Chomsky and linguistics, for example. And, um, you know, there's, there's research out there that suggests, for example, that there are certain indigenous languages 
um, for example, the Piranha language in the Amazon, which I studied back when I was in college. Um, there's studies and there's, you know, continued discussion about this, continued debate about this, about whether there is actually a complex number system in some of these languages, because in many cases, even having to say a number or even having to say certain parts of speech or having to refer to something, and also the fact that there's uh, certain notions of evidentiality in languages, for example, where in English, we kind of say everything is fact. Even when we say, I think that, or I believe that, that's really a matter of fact, but certain languages have completely different, almost dimensions to their language when you're listening to something and it's hearsay and you're restating that to somebody else or you're gossiping with somebody else. So these different axes of linguistic phenomena and linguistic elements that really demonstrate the the richness of, of course, human language are things that should also be encoded in these voice interfaces. And too often, I think one of the things I see a big problem with is it's much easier to take a written conversational interface like a chatbot or a Slackbot and translate that into Spanish or Turkish or Welsh or uh, durable in Australia. But if you're trying to actually do a voice interface, one of those things that you have to think about is not just the linguistic phenomena, but also the paralinguistic phenomena, which means how do people insert subtext? What gestures do people use? What are some of the ways in which people inflect the way they speak to convey meaning that is not necessarily written down with letters and punctuation marks? That's, yeah, that's awesome. Because um, uh, my, my undergrad degree was in uh, communication studies, right? And so also looking at uh, loosely what we call uh, nonverbals, but also vocalics fell, oddly enough, vocalics fell under a nonverbal category. But right, even, even where we're getting emphasis and energy that another human can sense, uh, and then body language as well, the things that surround that voice as well when we're having human-to-human conversation, I think, are really interesting areas. One of the... Uh, and you can tell me, Matt, this is not interesting at all, but I... <laughs> One of the things I nerd out about with language is it uh, one is that it is an innovation, right? Just in evolute and and uh, it's a system that's been hacked and it gets developed different ways. And and to your point, what was sometimes what was the intent or almost what was the problem that the language needed to solve? And then I get really interested in especially like uh, this is a ham fisted example, but the difference between um basically uh french canadian french and and kind of continental kind of uh french in, in thinking that basically the uh you know french immigrants came to quebec right in and there wasn't uh there wasn't youtube we couldn't listen to how other people taught and then how the languages kind of evolved differently and uh french friends of mine and and uh, canadian friends of mine I can't hear it, but they can, they can hear a French Canadian accent, not only a different structure, but they can also hear a, a difference in accent. So I, I get really interested, too, on one, the just how something evolves and then even taking that system and putting it in a different context and leaving it alone for a couple centuries, how it, it, it takes a different path. 
there's so much to unpack there. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that is so important to recognize, and this ties back, of course, to voice interfaces as well, is um, Erica Hall, who wrote the book Conversational Design yep. and uh, wrote the foreword for my newest book, uh, Voice Content and Usability. She writes in Conversational Design that conversation is not a new interface. It's the oldest interface. And if you think about the fact that it's an evolutionary tactic as well. It's very much part of the ways in which living organisms all over the world actually manifest certain new features in the ways in which they interact with their environments and their biomes, so to speak, in order to actually succeed and survive. Um, we are social animals and we need to have the ability to have these conversations. And the fact that we developed language, you know, it's around the same time probably that we domesticated the dog, probably after we started to develop, you know, the ability to make fire and to cook. Um, it's one of those things that kind of makes you think, you know, how it's not very different from a lot of the adaptations that a lot of organisms around our planet have. One example of this that I think is really compelling to steal a little bit from your reference to French Canadian and uh, the Quebecois language is the fact that uh, there are certain languages, for example, that have been specifically oriented towards their 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 environments and and some of the isolation that has resulted in development of languages. One example of this is the whistled forms of Spanish in certain remote islands um, that are very far away from the Iberian Peninsula. There's uh, certain you know, people who, because they needed to be able to be heard from across these cliffs and through, let's say, you know, miles of separation, they would whistle these languages. And you listen to the whistled form of this Spanish dialect, and you can't make out, I mean, if you're a Spanish speaker, you can't actually make out anything that they're saying, but it is a completely new innovation, a completely different evolution of language that really reflects the lifelike or organic nature and spontaneous nature or extemporaneous nature of language itself in many ways that I think is is so fascinating. One of the things that I think is very sad, and this is now me putting my linguist hat on, is yeah. the advent of, 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 of literacy, right? In some ways, um, the birth of Gutenberg and the development of the printing press, also well before that too, the development of hieroglyphics and cuneiform and writing to begin with, is one of those almost sad developments in the history of language because what the development of writing did was not only to revolutionize, of course, everything to do with the human experience, but it also put a bit of a slowdown on the speed of evolution of languages because the more that you concretize something, the more that you solidify and cement something, the more it becomes almost like a fossilized form of itself. And to this day, if you look at the ways in which English has changed, over the course of the last 400 years, since the time of Shakespeare, English really hasn't changed a whole lot. Between Beowulf and the Canterbury Tales, it changed a heck of a lot. And between the Canterbury Tales and Shakespeare, it changed a heck of a lot. But ever since Shakespeare, for the most part, ever since the you know earliest, let's say, American forms of literature, ever since the earliest forms of American literature, there haven't been really fundamental changes to the English language, um, despite, of course, uh, our, our best efforts. And if you think about what these implications mean for the voice interface designer, it's really stunning because when you think about the fact that the spoken word is much more, let's say, 
spontaneous or much more um, you know aleatory than the written word, which is you have a back scroll. There's an archival method. It's really using more, let's say, standardized forms of speech, whereas a lot of these newer innovations that have come about in language and dialects of English, for example, are not reflected in the written word, but very much are things that we use when we speak to each other on the street or with our favorite person at the deli counter. These are things that really need to be codified uh, in voice interfaces as well and reflected back to the users of voice interfaces in order for us to actually have a voice interface and a conversational interface that reflects the sort of diversity that we have as human language users. That's that's awesome. Uh, and so one thing too, this is make me think of. I'd love your your perspective on this. If I'm if I'm remembering it correctly from some of my uh, research long ago, but uh, are you familiar with Kenneth Burke? Uh, he's like a cultural anthropologist or, you know, it depended back, back in like the, you know, the early 1900s, it depends on like which department would claim him. But I believe it was from Burke. Uh, like he wrote a lot about dramatism and like symbolic nature of things, but I believe he had a claim that we view the world through terministic lenses or ling linguistic screens. It was a, it was a, a phrase like that, but the basic idea is if we don't have a word for it, it really doesn't exist in our mind. And yet this weird relationship then, like, it's how I feel sometimes I think when I hear from another language, I think about German, sometimes they just smash two words together, but they go perfectly together, or maybe idiomatic language, but sometimes we don't have a word for something. So it really doesn't exist, but then we get it and then it enables and so this just weird system with our, our brain and development on how we can access new things through through linguistic ideas. Any anything to that? Like if we don't have a word, this thing doesn't exist. I think this really reflects two different really interesting phenomena that um, have happened. And, and the first is that there are absolutely certain languages that have words that English simply doesn't have an equivalent for, especially words that I think reflect the almost clinical or more sterile nature of English in some ways. Um, for example, in Brazilian Portuguese, there's the word saudade, which means uh, a specific form of longing or a specific form of missing something. Sorry, right? Preston, I'm going to stop you. I, I was just introduced to that word from yeah. uh, I, it was, uh, Natalie Nixon. Uh, ah. So it, she writes a lot about creativity, but uh, she also that was it was one of her favorite words. And that was from uh, kind of uh, from speaking Portuguese. Well, let me give you another one that is almost in some ways, in my opinion, even richer than the meaning that saudade conveys in Brazilian Portuguese, which is uh, one thing that um, very few people know about me is that I studied Welsh uh, immersively when I was in college. And there's a Welsh word, hiraith. Um, and hiraith is one of those words that is very similar. It's on it's on the same plane, I would say, as saudade. But what hiraith means is specifically that unsettling form of nostalgia or longing or pining for something that may have existed or may not have existed in terms of that feeling of home. And it's really interesting when you think about the sociological context of this, right? Because Welsh, for example, is a language that has suffered immense 
marginalization over the centuries. And a lot of Welsh speakers fled to Argentina, fled to other countries, um, were discriminated against in their own homeland by uh, invaders. And if you think about the deep meaning behind that word, where a lot of people will use that word to refer to specifically that feeling of, of displacement from a home that they may they may never have actually ever known in the first place. It's a very interesting word, I think, especially as we deal with a lot of um, notions of, of how English and how this sort of Anglophone privilege or the, the uh, you know, takeover of English across the world has led to threats to um, indigeneity and uh, aboriginal languages and indigenous languages all over the world. And this is one of those things that I think is is really important for us to recognize, which is that that is not only taking place between different languages, it's also taking place in the same language. And I think one of the ways that we see this is in how marginalized communities will develop new words that do mean the same thing as words that we have already in the language, but are completely different and completely decontextualized. And, and in some ways, it's a reflection of the fact that a lot of these folks who are innovating these new terms or colloquialisms or new words are responding to the forms of oppression that they deal with on a daily basis. And, and the classic example of this, of course, I think is a lot of the amazing vernacular forms that have emerged thanks to African-American vernacular English, AAVE, and also in the field of lavender linguistics or LGBT linguistics, how queer communities have developed very different modes of speech, um, not only in English, but also in languages all over the world that are completely different from the ways in which um, we communicate generally. One final example that I'll leave here with uh, for this question is there's a fascinating story, and I encourage everyone who's interested in this aspect of social linguistics or linguistics, you know, with regard to how our social forms and our social systems actually pressure or modulate how we use language. There is a classic story of language genesis or the creation of new language, and that is when there was a group of orphan children in Nicaragua who were deaf um, and were all part of the deaf community, but because there were so few services available and really no accommodations available for deaf people in Nicaragua, these children were kind of stuck together on their own, put into a corner, and what ended up surfacing was a completely novel form of sign language, which is Nicaraguan sign language, which doesn't exist and has no equivalent in any other form of sign language anywhere else in the world. And it's just that kind of isolation and marginalization and recombination that is something that we need to remember as part of our DNA in just the same way that our DNA recombines and changes because of isolation and genetics and evolution, language does too. And the more that we reflect those sorts of adjustments and those sorts of forms of evolution and those sorts of gradual incremental changes in our language, in the forms of technology we use, especially in voice interfaces, the better off we'll all be. Because at the end of the day, the whole goal of user experience 
is to serve humans and to allow for humans to feel like they're using something that actually speaks back to them in a voice they can understand and they can hear themselves in. That, yeah, so many interesting things that you've been talking about throughout this conversation. And, and I've just thought a few times too, even when you're talking about like mouse keyboard, right? But every time we put something in the middle of that transaction, right? That how much it, it actually removes us from, from flow in a way. And so then even, you know, thinking about language, how in sometimes it feels so natural to us, but then how jarring it is like when Siri or Alexa tells us that they don't understand. Right. And it's, it, it may, maybe I need more self-esteem, but man, it's a real fucking downer for me when <laughs> they say I don't get it. Um, on the Welsh front, uh, so I, I love studying like uh, complexity and systems. So uh, uh, Snowden's work has been really interesting for me. But uh, and and I hope I'm saying it correctly. But the notion of Kinefin right, is his framework, and I think he says that that's also it doesn't have a true English. Uh, translation like a one-to-one but it's it's mostly a sense of place and how you're making sense of where you are in place and how you have to differentiate right between like kind of tame problems complicated complex and chaotic systems and how you react to those but uh, I think part of that too is he wanted to celebrate his Welsh heritage uh, using that term specifically Uh, but can you do you know am I pronouncing the term correctly is it Kinefin? I believe, well, you know, I'm actually not as familiar with uh, this as I would like to be, but um, it's it's uh, definitely the correct pronunciation, close to the correct pronunciation, at least, um, as far as I can can tell. Um, okay. But, you know, to, to, to go back to what you were saying earlier around misunderstandings and the lack of comprehension sometimes that we experience from voice interfaces, I think one of the things that I find most interesting about some of the ways in which we mess up or we're made to think that we messed up is that there is a very big difference between being corrected or being reacted to in that way by a fellow human being um, than it is from this uncanny valley bot that is telling us that we messed up because their computerized brain doesn't actually understand something that's supposed to be part of their inner workings. And this is a really interesting paradox that a lot of voice interface designers have um, not yet grappled with, which is uh, one of the seminal figures in voice interface design, Susan Hura, did several usability studies, actually many usability studies, that examined this whole question of, well, is it actually true that people, when they talk to something that they ultimately know is a computer, right, or something that they may not know is a computer, do they rather would they rather have a conversation that is 100% indistinguishable from a human conversation especially uh, thinking about whatever that means in the context of society or would they rather have a more artificial or rehearsed conversation and there's definitely opposing views on this front there's several uh, user experience uh, researchers like Raphael Arar and Robert Moore who write about the notion that we need to be moving towards conversation-centric approaches or conversation-centric design, which is the notion of when you have a conversation with a human, there is no arbitrary boundary to that conversation like we've seen today in our conversation today where we've gone through topics that I did not think that we would be going into uh, together today, Matt. But um, also, you know, the notion that there these, these voice interfaces and IVR systems have these arbitrary lines in the sand that 
betray their automated nature or their mechanical nature. But there's also usability research that suggests that people who are using and interacting with IVR systems, with voice interfaces on a daily basis, actually prefer this more artificial or stilted form of speech because they can rehearse it, they can practice it in the same way that we practice using a mouse, in the same way that we practice typing on a keyboard and getting our words per minute higher. It's the same sort of muscle memory that people would like to use and it's one of those things that really begs the question, is that goal of attaining lifelike or 100% perfect fidelity to human conversation really a goal that is something that everyone in our user base wants to pursue? It's a very, very important question, one that we'll see a lot of interesting answers to in the coming years for sure. That's that's great. Yeah, there are so so many interesting things that I'm nerding out on here. So I really, really appreciate the uh, the conversation. And so when you were talking about muscle memory and mouse, this might be a it might be apocryphal, but my understanding is the game Solitaire was uh, just developed to help people learn how to uh, drag and drop, right on the computer. So are the what what might be the Solitaire equivalent uh, in building voice interfaces? Ooh, that's an interesting one. And, and you know, I think, you know, we talked last time, I think, about skeuomorphism in yeah. uh, uh, visual design. And I think one of the classic examples that I think is really interesting is to think about, um, you know, the fact that, well, you you ask somebody who's a, uh, to use the, the uh, Generation Z term, a Zoomer today, and uh, you ask them, you know, hey, what's this, what's this thing that's next to the uh, open icon? And they say, oh, that's a save icon. Then you hold up a floppy disk and they say, oh, that's a save icon. That's, you know, because they don't know what a floppy disk is. They've never been in an you era 3D where floppy disk You 3D printed the save icon. <laughs> you have 3D printed <laughs> the save icon, exactly. And in the same way that these affordances and these emblems evolve over time, I think one of the really interesting things that I have thought about a fair amount recently as a designer is who thought of a weird looking arrow that's at an angle to be the pointer cursor for literally every single interface that we interact with that is larger than a, than a smartphone. Who decided that and why is that, you know? And um, when you think about the ways in which voice interfaces have already started to, let's say, draw those lines in the sand and start to set up a few of those sorts of affordances, there are certain things that we can already point to, certain interactions that we have with IVR systems there are certain expectations that have been settled by these voice interfaces and uh, conversational interfaces that will really have a big impact on the way that we interact with voice interfaces for many years to come. And I think one of the things that's really interesting as well is, well, you know, how does science fiction potentially impact the ways in which we interact with these things and the affordances that emerge? For example, when I give a command to uh, HAL in 2001 A Space Odyssey, or when I give an instruction to Majel Barrett's computer in Star Trek, how much of that fictional or fantastical approach to user interaction has leached into the ways in which we use voice interfaces and, and want to use voice interfaces today. It's this really interesting kind of uh, notion of, well, a lot of these interfaces didn't exist before. Now that we have these, let's say, both fictional and non-fictional senses of how they should work, that's really going to modulate the way that we approach them in the future. And it's both a, a very exciting proposition, but also a very dangerous one, because I'm not sure I want Gene Roddenberry deciding how I'm going to interact with voice interfaces 20 years from now. Right, right. Uh, you know, and I, I know there is a, some some 
uh, warm, heartfelt things about Star Trek, but especially 1960s Gene Roddenberry wasn't the way that we want to necessarily look at uh, fellow humans. Uh, so, uh, Preston, it was an absolute pleasure having you on on the podcast. I don't we I don't think we covered anything that I told you we were going to cover. Uh, <laughs> but this is such a such a wonderful conversation for me. I hope I hope it wasn't painful for you. Uh, how can guests? Uh, uh, get more. Uh, you, you have the book. Basically, if if I'm going to put a label on this, this is plug time. But where can people find out more uh, of, on on your writing? And I'll make sure I have links in the description. But uh, you know, we talked about your new book, but maybe some of your previous books and some of your uh, other other thoughts and writing that you're doing right now. Sure. I've written three books uh, up until now. That That's Decouple Drupal in Practice, which is about using Drupal, a content management system, in different content architectures. I'm also uh, completing the work on Gatsby, the definitive guide, which is about Gatsby.js, the website framework. Uh, voice content and usability was just launched on June 22nd. It's available on a Congratulations.com. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, it's available on a bookapart.com where you can find all of the really exciting information that I share shared today. Maybe not some of the more esoteric things that you and I talked about lately, Matt. Um, but you can also learn more about some of the work I do. I do a lot of writing for List Apart Magazine, Smashing Magazine. I'm a columnist for CMS Wire. I also do extensive writing on topics related to content architecture and content strategy and content design on my blog, Preston.so, including about voice content and voice interfaces. You can also keep track of me on Twitter at Preston.so. I'm also on LinkedIn. Or you can email me at preston.so at oracle.com. And last but not least, a very, very shameless plug here. I'm also running a conference coming up on July 14th and 15th called Decoupled Days, which is the only, let's say, future of content management conference um, in the world. And it's nonprofit, and we're having a free edition for the first time this year for those of you who are more engineers and uh, developer-oriented. Last but not least, um, voice content usability is out right now. It's uh, going to be out for, I hope, a very long time and help people with uh, developing voice interfaces. And uh, you can find out more at Preston.so. Thanks so much, Matt. Yeah, no, that was that, that's great. And just uh, also just for, for listening, I, I think so highly of uh, the a book apart imprint, right, as, as, a, as a publishing entity. And so uh, knowing that your book is there, I know there, there's like very high exacting standards to getting a book published there. So just kudos. Uh, and and I always see that as like a, an endorsement of a great a great book. And it was just an absolute pleasure to, uh, to have you join me on the podcast today. So I uh, wish you the best. And uh, thanks again for joining me. Hey, thanks so much, Matt. And I'll be sure to let you know when my next book with the book apart, Immersive Content and Usability comes out. Maybe we can have another conversation about some of these topics. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You're invited. Come back anytime. And, and maybe we'll even stick to the script that I told you we'll talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Hey, thanks so much and have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks.